those of you who arrived this, uh, the second half of this retreat I haven't met before. My name is Yanai, and I welcome you. I hope you feel you've been here a while already. Um, and uh, this morning, what I'd like to speak about is the <coughs> what's been termed in the tradition, um, in the Buddha being a great enthusiast of lists, the four great attachments and how we might meet them and what our basic response to them might be in our practice. In our meditation and in the Dharma teachings, what perhaps we hear and what we experience again and again is that the, the basis of the, the sense of limitation, bondage or unsatisfactoriness that we experience in life is very fundamentally connected to the, the way we become attached, the attachments that we form to various aspects of our life, of our experience. And that the process of understanding the nature of these attachments as being, and this tendency to form attachments, um, as being the, the basis, the foundation of much of our suffering in life. And equally that in recognizing this actuality and experiencing this directly, observing it, what we come to discover is that letting go is the basis of releasing ourselves from that bondage, of freeing ourselves from unsatisfactoriness in life and, from, and the basis for discovering a, a true ease, peace, well-being and freedom in life comes through letting go. And so the Buddha spoke of, on a number of occasions, four major realms of attachment which we really need to give attention to in our practice, which we need to look at in our lives. And the first of these areas of attachment, and this is perhaps for most of us the one that is most obvious to us, is the area of sense pleasures. We notice how much of the time we are seeking for enjoyment. We're seeking for that which is pleasurable and we're seeking to in some way avoid or get away from that which is not pleasant. And there's often a, a sense of almost being driven by a hunger of looking for, looking for an experience, looking for a particular event, whether it be a sensation or a series of sensations in our body, whether it be an experience happening around us, whether it be a particular state of mind that we are looking for something that will somehow make us feel better. We're looking for something perhaps that we can enjoy, that will take our mind off the difficulties of our lives. And we see perhaps very often and almost first of all in our practice how the movement of attachment to sense pleasures reveals itself in the body and how we want have a pleasant, easeful, comfortable body in which to practice, with which to practice, and how we struggle at times when it's not so, and how equally in those moments and times when we feel comfortable in our body, when we're actually experiencing it as pleasurable, how so much we wish and long for it to continue, and the thought, finally, now I've arrived, and, and then of course the thought, and how will I stay here, how can I keep this experience? Working with the pleasant experiences and equally the unpleasant as a rather basic experience of life 
requires a degree of, of clarity and of balance. It's not just in the obvious things of pleasurable bodily experiences, but the whole range of pleasure and displeasure that we need to look at, that we see the states of mind that we experience. How often we have the view that we're looking for this or we want that, and so much of what goes on underneath what we're looking for, what we're seeking, what we're grasping at in terms of our inner experience, states of mind that are pleasurable, states of mind that we actually enjoy, and how much we resist and react or fight against states of mind that we find unpleasant, when we're agitated, when we're confused, when we're upset or reactive in some way, and that the state of mind itself is not pleasant for us. It's uncomfortable. To be able to recognize that and to see that if we become attached to having just a pleasant state of mind in practice, that ultimately this will cause conflict, this will cause pain for us. And that there's a way in which we can receive and deeply benefit from, be nourished and nurtured by experiences which can also be pleasurable. And that can be states of deep peace and ease and well-being that we experience as a, a state of our mind, a condition of our consciousness. Equally it can be from sounds that seem rather beautiful. The sound of the bell, perhaps at the end of the sitting, can be just rather sweet and touch us rather deeply. Or the sound of some birds singing in the garden. Or the sights that we see. Again, there can be incredible beauty and enjoyment and pleasure and just connecting with and taking in the, the wonderful environment that we have here. The trees and the plants and sometimes the small creatures, the squirrels playing. Or equally just the beauty of seeing a room full of people sitting quietly in those moments that one might walk in after most of the others. Or seeing someone very mindfully walking. We can actually find a pleasure in it and enjoy it. And there's nothing wrong in that itself. And this is where one has to be rather careful. There's nothing wrong in actually experiencing that which is pleasurable, which might be joyful, uplifting. In fact, there's a lot which is quite right and appropriate in it. But to be aware of how we can spend so much time looking for it, wanting it to happen when it's not actually happening, or when it is there, when we are actually receiving the gift of something pleasurable, enjoyable, nourishing in that way, how we're so often wanting to somehow keep hold of it. We're living in a fear of its loss or a struggle with the reality that it will change. And so the, the area of attachment to sense pleasure gives us an incredible range of experience within which to explore what it means to let go. What it means to actually contact, to connect with both the pleasurable and equally with that which is unpleasant, to connect with it, to meet it fully, and yet not seek to keep hold of that which is pleasurable or to gain more of it, nor yet to be seeking to get rid of or to reduce the amount of that which is not pleasant, but just simply meeting it, simply engaging each moment as it reveals in exactly whatever it does reveal to us as experience that sometimes we think of letting go and it's perhaps somewhat misused or misunderstood. We think it, 
It sounds rather ple- rather a nice idea in the context of unpleasant or difficult experiences to think, oh yes, I'll let that go. What we really mean is, I want to get rid of it. And so the attachment isn't expressed in the way we would normally use the word. When we think of attachment, oh, I'm not attached to my anger, no way, I'm desperately trying to get rid of it, in fact. Or, I'm not attached to my fear or my boredom. No, no, not at all. And yet, if we're trying to get rid of it, that's just attachment in another form. That's actually just attachment expressing itself in its aversive, its negative aspect. Equally as we might say, oh yeah, we know when we're having a pleasant meditation that we're attached. There's a part of us that's thinking, oh, I should just be with this, but there's a part of us that's really saying, this is great. Let's have some more of these. And planning how we can make that happen. Oh, that's right, I didn't eat so much for lunch. Maybe that's what will do it. Or it was because I did 40 minutes walking and then 40 minutes sitting, and so I've got to do exactly 40 minutes walking beforehand. All the thoughts that come. To see how often it's driven by that wanting for pleasure in the experience and for the not wanting or the seeking to get rid of that which is not pleasurable. Be aware of how much time and energy it consumes in your life, in your meditation practice, in each moment when one isn't really conscious and aware of that tendency, that process. The second great attachment that's spoken of in the tradition is the attachment to rites and rituals. And I think it's perhaps one of the the things that for many we've experienced in our relationship to spirituality, to religion and its different forms and expressions, both traditional and um, contemporary, that there can often be a lot of, it seems, activity going on which we don't necessarily feel is meaningful, we don't necessarily feel is appropriate. And we can see, oh yes, I, I can see how people have become attached to bowing in front of statues or making offerings of flowers or um, you know, eating small wafers or, or whatever it might be. And that there's all these forms that people engage in and that sometimes people are obliged and required to engage in to participate in a spiritual or religious tradition. And certainly for myself, one of the great, I think, supports for my connecting with the, the way the teachings are presented here and um, in other parts of where sort of sister centres or teachers with a similar spirit teach is that there's really a stripping away of a lot of the ritual, a lot of the um, religion or the symbology and the imagery and the, all the things you have to do. Um, and that perhaps to some extent protects us from getting too engaged, too caught up in rites and rituals. But it's not simply about whether one engages in such things, because they can actually be profound and powerful practices. Looking at rites and rituals from the point of view of whether we are attached, to my understanding, what this is about is looking at whether we're making anything which we're engaging in in the name of spiritual practice. Anything at all, whether we're somehow making that into the thing which is going to do it for us. And whether we're in some way giving away or handing over responsibility to the form. And whether it's that if I bow down three times and offer candles each morning at the statue, whether it be of the Buddha, of Jesus Christ, of any deity we may know of and the many traditions that have them, if we think that that in itself is going to do it, the form, the outer appearance, the, just the physical activity, 
then we're mistaken. And yet often what we transfer, we, we put onto what we're doing that somehow magical power that it's going to do it for us. And one might just look and be a little careful in the way one relates to meditation practice. That one has to have a balance between a sense that, of course, we're not making it happen. It's not like we or I am doing it. That's kind of apparent because what's happening has often got nothing to do with what we're trying to make happen. Rather fortunately, I would say. Um, and yet there can still be... Th- th- there's that extreme where we think, you know, I've got to make it happen. And then there's the other extreme where we say, oh no, I'm not involved in this really. I just need to do the form. If I just sit and walk, it'll happen. There's a truth to that. But it requires that we engage ourselves with the process. That we don't give away to the process, to the simple form of sitting and walking, of watching what is occurring. We don't give away to that, the, in a way, the spark of vitality, the spark of life that we need to bring to it, to enrich it, to make it alive, to make it vital. Otherwise, we're just transforming it, and this is the danger, into a form, into a ritual, into something we just do. Oh, I just sit. And we might have seen people who you know, engage in other forms of spiritual practice and sort of thought, oh, that seems rather empty. We have to be vigilant that our own practice doesn't go in the same direction, I feel. Just careful. And again, it's a very delicate balancing act between getting too caught up in making it happen and getting too laid back and thinking, oh, it's all, you know, happening without me. Because neither of those positions is absolutely the truth. And there's a nice story that's told, has some um, things to say about this. There's a, um, I think, a, a couple of, I think there was Jesuit priests in Japan who were visiting a, a Zen monastery and the, um, the Zen practitioners there and the, the abbot of the monastery all engaging in very um, committed and dedicated meditation practice and the uh, the Jesuit priest engaging with the abbot in some conversation, speaking about spirituality, asked him, what's the, the place of grace in your tradition, in your teachings? And um, they, they said, in, in our understanding, sort of God has provided all of this for us. It's already all here, what is done. You know, and and we, we don't need to do anything more. We don't need to practice the way that you practice. And the um, Zen master looked at him and said, well, in our tradition, we believe God has already done his part. And what's left is for us to engage with it. That there's a piece in which, and whether the imagery, the symbology of God or the Dharma is workable for you, or whether you'd rather just use no language at all, finding a place between two positions where one is making it happen and the other is having no engagement with the process of the unfoldment of one's practice. Sitting too far back and just watching from a kind of, I don't need to do anything, I don't need to engage, sort of, you know, some mysterious divine intervention is going to be what occurs here and I just need to sit and walk long enough and then I'm guaranteed something will come of that. And so there's really a, a sense of, of bringing to our practice a real opening to what's occurring. So we're not just engaging in it as an empty form, but we're even questioning the very form 
in the same spirit that we engage in it so that we're not just meditating but we're aware of the process of meditation we understand that as a form which is powerful, transformative, no doubt and yet which we can't in a way totally disengage ourselves from we can't sort of just say I'll do it and that will somehow produce results so I can imagine and just reflecting on what I'm saying as I, as I think and, and perhaps for each of you there's a different side of this to hear depending where you might find yourself and that for some maybe it's a question of more engaging there's a little bit sort of too much holding back there or just thinking oh it's all going to happen for me and for others it might be more there's a sense of oh too much trying to make it happen and maybe needing to just let it be a bit more finding a sense of that within yourself and that the that again that, that piece of what attachment to rites and rituals is all about and that we have a great attraction to this is the idea that something or someone else is going to do it for me and one can see if one looks in the world and there's no shortage of it whenever a teacher or a tradition comes up and says I'm guaranteeing you spiritual results do this, follow me, bow at my feet and you're going to get it on a plate the popularity it's rather overwhelming. It's a rather attractive proposition. And we could perhaps feel in ourselves where we might like someone to offer that to us. We might like to think that just sitting and walking offers it to us. And to understand that it both does and yet does not. What is possible is possible only insofar as we don't actually attach to the form because that very attachment, that very taking for granted that something will happen, that very handing over of our own vitality, just making it into a, a form, that that's actually what undermines the possibility that it offers us in a rather strange way. So to To really explore where the balance might be between making it happen oneself or presuming that another or something else or the form is going to make it happen for us. That ultimately the truth lies in neither of those two positions. And don't worry if you can't find a third. The the third great attachment that is spoken of in the tradition is the attachment to views and opinions. And the Buddha spoke on a number of occasions of the way and the habit we have of becoming entangled in our views, in our belief systems, in our ideas. And the um, various sort of descriptions used for that of being entangled in a, a fetter of views, a thicket of views, a wilderness of views and opinions. And we only have to be silent for a few minutes to become aware of some of the views and opinions that we hold. The views about the way things are, the views about what should be and what should not be. Whether it be how my meditation should be, what's a good one, what's a bad one, or how the world should be, how, now there's no shortage of these ones, how someone else should be and how everybody else should be practicing so as not to cause me any difficulty. 
the ideas that we hold on to, when we notice that we have a belief about something, we really need to sit up and take care. We need to really examine what's happening in the process whereby we give authority to something in the realm of concepts. Because all beliefs, all views, all opinions are based in concepts which are ultimately unable to grasp anything real, unable, unable to actually capture the way things actually are. And insofar as they're involved um, with views about how things were, the past, they're almost inevitably something of a distorted or partial recollection of how things were. And to the extent that their views about how the future will be, there's a, a very, very low proportion of views about the future that actually turn out to be accurate, despite the fact that we believe and we cleave onto them so much. And we see that our views and opinions about any number of subjects, that we, we use them to give ourselves a sense of safety, a sense of control, a sense of knowing what's going on, and how incredibly comfortable it is for us to be in a situation where we don't know, where we haven't got a clear belief or view or opinion about what's going on. And again, some of the things I've maybe even spoken about already this morning, one might not be sure. You know, what is he talking about? Is he making sense? And maybe he's not. A perfectly good view to have. And maybe just as good as a view that he is. But to be aware of when we find ourselves wanting to know or holding on to a sense of our knowing something, anything at all, that in those moments where perhaps we find ourselves caught up in doubt or confusion, often what's happening is a real pressure to find an answer, to know, to be clear about something, some particular issue, whether it's should I walk or sit in the next period, or whether it's, should I make a big change in my life? Should I keep practicing here till the end of the year? Or should I leave tomorrow? Whatever it might be, there's often a pressure of wanting to know and to become familiar with that. That if we can learn to rest in recognizing our views and opinions as such, as just views and opinions, what we see is that the way we hold on to them is the cause of an incredible amount of conflict in our lives and in our worlds. And we can see that it's actually attachment to views and opinions that is so often the basis of the wars which cause so much grief and pain and misery on our planet. And so often the basis of the incredible struggles that we have going on within ourselves. The views and opinions that we hold about another about ourselves, about our situation, and how we struggle to fit our views and opinions onto the world when this don't, they don't necessarily they don't necessarily actually really connect, or they don't really describe the way it is, or equally how we want how we want so much when we don't know to have an opinion, any opinion, and culturally we're conditioned to give so much weight to our views. We actually almost measure people by their views and opinions, whether we like them or not. Determine so much on that in our culture, whether we agree with them or not. And some of the questions that we might find ourselves asking and 
in our practice and times of quietness and stillness, maybe deep, profound questions, where we really wonder, is all of this real? Is this really substantial? Is there anything really there? Or is it that, that this is all just a fabrication, an illusion, something make-believe? And at times we'll be sure it's real because it just hit us in the face and it hurts. And other times it'll seem like there's nothing we can really take hold of and, and we're starting to think, oh, it's not real at all. And questions like this were asked by people in the time of the Buddha, were asked, in fact, thousands of years before his time. Is this all real or not? And yet to see how we tend to have a view about it. We tend to think, oh yeah, this is real. Body's here, world's here. When I die, that'll be it. It's all over. That's a view. Or, when I die, I'll live again in some other form, some other way. It's a view. Or this world is just nothing. It's empty. I don't really need to take it too seriously. That's a view as well. How much of the time are views and a tendency to believe in them, to unquestioning, in an unquestioning way, direct our life by views, by our ideas, by concepts. And so many of them that we've simply inherited unquestioned from others, whether they be our parents, our peers, our teachers. But the attachment to views and opinions is what actually keeps us from opening into a space in which true discovery is possible. That we, we fill our mind with a belief system and it keeps us safe. It keeps us from having to enter into the unknown realms in which we can't actually get a belief. We can't form a view. We can't make an opinion that really captures the way it is. And that any attempt to do so only diminishes it, only reduces the truth, the reality of it. And as was said by the, uh, it was, oh, I've forgotten his name. <laughs> Sen Tsan, Sen Tsan in the Mind of Absolute Trust, speaking of these things, does not seek for truth, but just let go of your opinions. What might that mean for us? to actually let go of our opinions. To let go of our beliefs about the way things are. If we contemplate that seriously for a moment, we might notice quite some uh, agitation, perhaps fear, confusion even. That's really quite fine in that context, to let that be there. But sometimes that actually the letting go, and here we're again talking about one of the fundamental attachments that we entangle ourselves with, views and opinions. Letting go of any of these will often give rise to fear, give rise to a sense of wanting to grasp out and take hold of that particular thing that we're contemplating, letting go of. So just being aware of that, noticing that process. And so the, the first three great attachments, again, the attachment to sense pleasure, attachment to what is enjoyable and getting or avoiding 
getting rid of that which is not enjoyable. And the attachment to rites and rituals, to thinking that something or someone else is going to do it for us, is going to somehow make it happen to us. The attachment we have to views and opinions, to ideas and beliefs. All of these perhaps are founded on in some way or contribute to in some way the fourth great attachment, which is the, the attachment to the sense of self. The attachment to the belief, and in some ways we can say it's a view and opinion, in other ways it's actually an aspect of the others also. But it's the attachment to a sense of who we are, to the belief in our individual independent existence. And this attachment really lies at the base of all the others. This attachment is really that from which all the other springs. That we see in meditation, we see in our lives, the sense of who we are. We experience it. So we can look and see the thoughts that arise saying, I am this. And they can talk about the different roles we engage in. The role of parent or child, employee, employer, partner or lover or spouse. We can find ourselves in the role of the meditator or the good meditator or the bad meditator or the spiritual person or the worldly. Whatever the roles that we might feel, we see how we find ourselves in them, how according to what's going on for us, what we're engaged in in terms of activity, who we're relating to and in what way, we experience these roles. And we do talk about, I am this, I'm functioning in the role of giving teachings. One could say, as a teacher, one is doing meditation, one can say, yes, functioning in the role of the meditator. We, we see how we have the sense of who we are coming from our history, coming from this is what occurred to me in my past, as we remember it, as people have told it to us. And we see the sense of I am in terms of the qualities that we recognize within us, both those that we would um, be grateful to discover within us, the qualities of calm, of courage, of wisdom and compassion, and equally at times those qualities of, of anger or of jealousy or of fear and loneliness, that we, we feel that this is who we are, this is who I am. And the whole sense of self that we experience to really recognize it as an experience. That sometimes in the tradition, and I think slightly unfortunately, we get into the view or the position that we're trying to negate all of that or somehow get rid of all of that. And the, the view, I haven't got a self or there's no sort of self here, is taken in some absolute way, as some absolute position. And that therefore I've got to get rid of all these things which talk of self, which talk of me, which talk of my roles and my activities, my experience. And yet it's much more about understanding the nature of our attachment to it than whether we are trying to get it or get rid of it. And in the same way we can have the form of negative attachment, of aversion to ourself or to sense of self, to descriptions of ourselves, as we can have the positive identification, the attachment in its more conventional sense. And to be aware, if we think, yeah, I'm really into no self, I want to get rid of all the stuff that I don't like. It's really not about that. And yet too easily practice becomes a process where we just try to fix ourself or make ourselves something better or more spiritual. And while there's a place for that, it has its value. 
more fundamentally is really questioning this attachment, this dependence upon the sense of self at all. That the there's a there's an experience that we call self, no doubt. We know what that is. We recognize it in its various forms. Sometimes it sneaks up upon us unexpected. Other times it's rather familiar and predictable in the way it reveals itself. But to perhaps ask ourselves, when we if we feel and we may sense this attachment to it, how there's a there's a wanting for it, there's there's something it offers us. It's not happening out there by accident or in here by accident. There's something it's offering to us, there's something we're we're seeking from it that that asks us or that pushes us to hold on, to take to grasp at it, and we feel that it's not just this experience of self, but there's a contraction that it engenders. There's a, a solidification, a, a tightening that goes on around it. That, that actually is what gives it its sense of solidity, that gives it its importance. And rather than, again, just taking a position, oh, don't believe that Buddhist stuff about no self. I've got a self, that's for sure. And or equally taking the position, oh yeah, well, if the Buddha said there's no self, I guess he was right, so there isn't. Don't know what I'm doing here then, but not taking a position on it, but really questioning the belief, that whole sense of I am. What where's the attachment to it? How are we holding it? And we often explore that in terms of what's it offering to me? Because that's where we get attached when we feel something's being offered to us in some way. And then we might question, well, what is it or who is it or how is it that there's this ability to see, to recognize this process of self, to recognize us holding on to it? Who or what is it that's seeing it? Who or what is it that's holding on? And if we perhaps ask that question rather deeply in our hearts, we might be rather perplexed. Because how can it be that the self is somehow standing outside of itself, observing itself? It perhaps is a pointer to what's going on. It's not that the self is gone, but that the self, there's more to what's going on here than that story, than that description that bases it around being an individual entity. And that what we perhaps see what we experience more directly in looking at is that there's two fundamental things occurring. There's a tendency to grasp at. There's a tendency to hold on. Expressing itself in many different ways. And the areas of the four great attachments, just one way of describing them, one could say. See, there's this, this grasping. Sometimes one almost feels in a place of stillness. It's almost like a hand reaching out from the centre of one's being and sort of wanting to take hold of something. There's this sense of grasping. And how is it there's a contraction? how it's often driven by fear. And that there's this movement of wanting to take hold of, either with desire to keep, to sustain, or with fear, aversion, anger, to get rid of, to remove. We see there's this contraction that comes, and yet we can actually observe it. And that in that capacity to observe how we take hold of anything at all, we learn to rest in that awareness and that capacity for seeing it happening that is there that's always there in any moment 
Awareness is possible. We can connect with it. We don't make it happen. We can't stop it happening. But we can meet it. And in that meeting, what we see is that the process of of taking hold of attachment, the contraction that comes with it, whether it be contraction around the pain in our knee, around the mind state that we're having to endure, around the the things that we are in, enjoying at any moment, that that sense of contraction, whether it be about our sense of who I am, what all of this is about, that contraction somehow limits or freezes us in a way in that we we lose touch with the flow of life. We come somehow removed from the flow of life. And that in actually our seeing of that contraction and our recognizing of what happens in that contraction that awareness itself has the capacity to release the contraction. It has the capacity to melt the solidity and the separation that goes with the contraction. And that the process of letting go is one that essentially comes out of that awareness in a rather mysterious way. And so really being vigilant, really being interested to see where attachment reveals itself in the realm of sense pleasure, in the realm of hoping for something or someone to do it for us, in the realm of ideas and beliefs which make us feel so safe and yet are so easily a prison, in the realm of the sense of who we are, in essence, what all this is about. Letting go is the invitation to our freedom. So could we sit quietly for a minute, please? discover the ease of letting go. 